Father, thank you for the love that you've given to us through your Son. I thank you, Father God, that you have bought and purchased us and removed us from our slavery to sin. Be with us this morning, Father God. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would transform us by the power of your word, that you would help us, that you would sustain us, that you would encourage us. Thank you. Father, I thank you for the time we have to gather this morning. Be with each one of us here this morning. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen. It's good to have you here this morning. Um, I have a a small group announcement. We have a new small group that will be starting a week from tonight at the Klemeyers. And uh, I don't have an exact time. You could talk with Rebecca or Scott. And if you're interested in a small group, that one's getting started. Um, I, it already sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you for doing that. I'd like for us to turn to First uh, Peter chapter three as we continue the series that we've we've been in. I I I kind of maybe this is just me, but I kind of realized as I was studying this week that ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. There's been trouble. I mean, ever, ever since she picked that pear off the tree, and I, I'm, I don't like pears, so I always say it's a pear, not an apple. Ever since the fall in the garden, there's been trouble. And there, there, there was a time, in, even in our lives, when, when the troubles of life were fairly limited. And if you go back in history a little bit more than, than our time of history, the, the troubles in life were fairly limited to your own personal sphere. Your, your troubles were your troubles. But now, now we're exposed to the troubles of the whole world. We know in an instant of every disaster, every war, every conflict, and every so, uh, social upheaval. Every moment of every day and night, we have access to details about trouble and why we're all doomed. Our readily available media tells us various ways the earth is going to come to an end and warns us of the threat of newly discovered diseases and sicknesses. We are informed of social disasters and social disaster after social disaster. Instantly. If you don't believe me, then you don't have a cell phone. Or a computer. Evil seems also to just continue to get worse. Corruption and moral perversions of all sorts have become normal. Perversions uh, and trouble and fear and manipulations that we are experiencing should not surprise us as believers. This is what the Bible promised would occur. And I say promise because it's God's word and he said this would happen I'm calling that a promise. He doesn't say, you know, as things go on, things are going to get better. That's not what he did. As the time comes closer to the end of this age, it's going to get worse. One of the places that has always impacted me about this truth is 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, 
ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captive and, and captivate weak women weighted down with sin, led on by various impulses. That doesn't mean that only the women in our lives are the ones that have the problem. Just, just warning you guys. You can't use that as, see, it's all your fault. Entering into households and captivate weak women doesn't mean that all women are weak. What's he saying? The times are getting worse. We need to be aware of that. And this is what Peter is doing in this letter. Peter gives us practical insight to living as Christ followers while surrounded by all this hostility. Believers have been given a very difficult task. You've heard me say it before. God could have saved you, and at the moment He saved you, whisked you off to His kingdom in heaven. Couldn't He? You get saved, you just, boom, you're there. But He didn't. He leaves us here. And this gives us a very difficult task as followers of Christ. Because we represent His kingdom, and we're here to evangelize the society we live in, while... We live in this society that's increasingly hostile to the Bible and to Christianity. That's a difficult place to be. But that's where we live as believers. Now, with that as the the introduction, let's read today's passage because it's loaded with some really good things to help us in this difficulty. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. That's a powerful, powerful passage. And it impacts us very much. In verse 1, prove, the word prove means to become. And it, and it, it, was, it was used of becoming something. There's an intensity and a passionate aspect of that proving. A believer's character is to become what? To become zealous for what is good. Peter was familiar with the zealots. At that time, Jewish zealots were those who would do anything, lie, steal, kill, riot, anything to free Israel from foreign rule. That was their passion. That's why they were zealots. They would carry out their intense schemes even if the result was their own death. That was the understanding of a zealot when Peter wrote this. 
And so Peter is using that terminology, and he's telling us as believers to be zealous for good, which ultimately produces a good life for believers. Not that the good life means you won't have any trouble. If you are a zealot for what is good, your life is about kindness, mercy, love, and patience. When a believer is filled with a zeal for goodness, godly living becomes a delight. And joy is, is a delight. Joy is a delight? Is that redundant? They both become something that, that stirs us. And they become a goal. The things of the world no longer fascinate those who have a zeal for goodness. They, they don't, the, the things of the world don't fascinate us and draw us into ungodly ways of living. When believers live godly lives, even the hostile world finds it dis, difficult to, to persecute the believer. If, if, you're just, if you're just really passionate about doing good and you're nice to people, it's really difficult for them to be mean to you. That's a practical thing. As Peter goes on in verse 14, he explains that even when a believer lives a godly life, you may still suffer persecution and trouble. And this is one of the things that I believe we're going to see increase as well as time goes on. This was happening in the first century as well. There's no guarantee the believer will be immune to trouble. If you are zealous for good and are still persecuted, the result is you are blessed. I mean, let's take a survey real quick. Any of you in here want to be blessed? Just any, any, any takers? You want to be blessed? Okay. I've done that many, many times in my ministry, and I have yet to see anybody go, absolutely not, Pastor. I do not want to be blessed. I've had some people say, I'm not worthy of being blessed. Okay, well, then get saved because you, you know, you're worthy. If you're saved, you're worthy. And what Peter is saying is if you're doing good, if you're living a godly life, you're going to be blessed. So, so what does that mean, to be blessed? In this context, bless is, is not, not so much being happy or joyful, even though that's, that's really how the word can be taken apart. But the word blessed can also have the idea of privilege or honor. Here's a great example from Scripture. Same word, just used in a different place, about a great story. And uh, this is the story of Mary and Elizabeth. We usually do this around Christmas. Mary is pregnant with Jesus, and she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who's also pregnant with the, who would become the, John the Baptist. And Elizabeth and, and Mary come together, and Elizabeth's baby leaps within her womb. I've always wondered what that would feel like, but I'm never going to know. So maybe the women here know what that might be like. Something happens. And when that happens, Elizabeth cries out. This is from Luke 1.42. She cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So she blesses. She says, Mary, you are blessed. 
being, Mary being blessed didn't mean she's, she was filled with joy. She might have been at that moment. And it doesn't mean that she would have a happy and joyful life because Mary's life was filled with numerous hardships and deep sorrows because she was the mother of Jesus. And we always talk about Mary being blessed. Well, you can't, you can't just go, that blessing means that she was just happy and joyful all the time. Oh, by the way, the king wants to kill all the little babies. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to flee. Okay. What Elizabeth meant was Mary was honored and the object of God's favor. And that's the same meaning in 1 Peter. Okay? If you live a godly life, you are honored and you are the object of God's favor. How cool is that? That is amazing. In that same verse, 1 Peter 3.14, suffering for righteousness and doing good, then, it is a privilege. Now, that messes with the way we think. Being in a situation of suffering is a privilege, and you're honored for doing that? That doesn't mean that you just go out and seek suffering. But when you are doing good and you are persecuted, and you are, you are ridiculed for being good, there's a privilege in that and an honor. Believers are followers of Christ. And this same honor was exemplified by him. He suffered more than any man or woman ever would at any time. He was perfectly good in all that he did. None of us can ever say that. So in his perfect good human life, he was also the most honored because he was also the one who suffered the most because he suffered under the weight of your sins and mine and he suffered terribly even in his innocence. This was a familiar teaching. Uh, it was a teaching that Peter had, had heard from Jesus. Uh, one of the places you can find this is Matthew 5, beginning of verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus Jesus taught his disciples, Jesus taught his followers the same thing. The more you suffer and are persecuted for righteousness, the more you become zealous for God, the more you are honored in heaven. Peter reinforces this teaching in 1 Peter by quoting from Isaiah 8, beginning in verse 12. You are not to say it is a conspiracy. In regard to all this, people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. 
What's going on? And the reason that Peter uses this quote from Isaiah, it's a history lesson. So we need to go back. King Ahaz of Judah knew the Assyrian army was about to evade. So the king of Judah knew the bad guys were coming. The kings of Israel and Syria wanted to form an alliance to oppose the Assyrians because Israel and Syria were threatened by the Assyrians as well. King Ahaz refused to join forces, and as a result, it always seems kind of wacky, but as a result, Israel and Syria threatened to invade Judah. They were nuts. What does Ahaz do? He forms an alliance with Assyria. Convoluted, strange, it's kind of like politics today. So because this alliance was made, the prophet Isaiah gave this warning against the alliance, urging Ahaz to trust God to deliver Judah. Don't fear what the other nations fear. Don't fear the Assyrians. Fear God. Don't fear like the world around you fears. Have you, have you noticed? It, it isn't just now because of COVID and all the other things going on that the world around us has these, these times when it's just, it's just consumed with fear. The warning from Isaiah and, and the warning from Peter is don't fear like the world around you. Fear God. Don't fear like the world fears. Don't be shaken, disturbed, or troubled. Trust the Lord of hosts. Fear the Lord God. I mean, seriously. Especially as believers. What's the worst thing that could happen here on earth? I ask youth this very often over the years that I've done youth ministry, and, and usually some real robust young man in the youth group will go, kill you. And I go, that's not the worst thing, because all that is is, is an invitation, a free trip, a pass to heaven, and we're in, in the presence of God. What's the worst thing then? Really nothing. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's live that way. Don't be shaken by what happens around us. What this means back in 1 Peter is if you are persecuted because of your righteous, godly living, and and that's a clue there because this is a little bit conditional. If you're not living a godly life, then none of this kind of works the same. If you are living a righteous and godly life, you are honored by God and you, you will receive from God a reward. That, that outweighs everything else that could happen here, doesn't it? So don't fear. Have courage and don't compromise. This is something that we see throughout Scripture and throughout the history of man. Many believers, many followers of God, followers of Christ, have been zealous for good, stood their ground, and lost their lives. Zach and I were talking about this earlier in the week, and we, we, we love the Word, and, and sometimes he and I talk about the way the Bible came to us, and, and there were men like Tyndale and others who, who wanted the Bible to be in English, and they wanted to, to promote Scripture. 
And some of them, like Tyndale, it burned at the stake. Don't compromise. Be zealous for good. There's a history of believers who have done that, and they've lost their lives. Their persecution was their free trip to heaven. Peter's exhortation is to be bold, to be righteous and holy and zealous for good, knowing God will bless us and our, our persecution will become our joy. I had the exceptional opportunity in my life to minister behind the Iron Curtain. The church was just beginning the process of, of coming out of the dark. The East German government was starting to, to relax its thumb on, on Christianity, and so the underground church was becoming more obvious. And in all my travels and all the Christians I've been around, that is one of the churches where I saw the most people that are just going, God is so good. And they're just, there's this overwhelming joy about who they were in Christ, even though there were people, there were two of their leaders, the man who started this particular church just suddenly disappeared. Nobody's ever seen him ever again. That's that kind of persecution. Another one of their leaders was a, a, a concert pianist. And he wouldn't relent. They said, you quit preaching Jesus. You quit promoting the church. He said, I can't do that. And time passed and they arrested him and they crushed both his hands. Just don't do it anymore. Well, what was his response? I'm just as enthusiastic about Jesus as I were, was before you crushed my hands. I'm going to keep teaching Jesus. And eventually he also just disappeared. His family never, ever knew what became of him. We don't experience that kind of persecution. And in that church, they were growing so rapidly that they were moving almost every week to someplace bigger. They were meeting in a hall about this size when we were there, and there was standing room only. This is an underground church. And people are, they're, they're raising their hands. They're, maybe they weren't Baptists. They were, they were swaying, they were singing. It was really cool. They're, th- they're thrilled with Jesus. They're zealous to to live godly lives. And what's happening? The church is just exploding. Peter's exhortation is for us to be bold and righteous and holy and zealous for good. This means we must not be preoccupied with the things of the world. That church in East Germany wasn't. They didn't care about the worldly situation. They cared about Jesus. They cared about the church. They cared about one another, that part of the church. Our hearts must be set on the things of heaven, not on possessions, pleasures, comforts, and popularity. Set on heaven. Peter goes on in verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. As believers, we regard the Lord as holy. Holy just simply means 
set apart. Simple. We give him, we set him apart in a way of honoring him. We give him all our respect and we submit to him because we love him. As believers, we set God apart as the only one worthy of our worship and love. No matter what occurs in the world, no matter how society fails, no matter how politics disappoint us, no matter how evil increases, I will magnify Jesus. I will adore His greatness. I will exalt His perfection. And I will submit to Him and His plan. I will recognize every day His perfect wisdom and His ultimate plan of glory. That's more important to me than anything else. That's being a zealot for God. Everything else doesn't really matter. What matters is whether or not I set set God apart in how I live. Something else is then connected with that in verse 15. Always be re- being ready to make a defense. Because when you live that way, people notice. So you, you, you're being noticed. You're being watched. People know that you're living your life differently. So you need to always be ready to make a defense. Now that may sound like a formal defense, like a courtroom. And that word there can mean that. The word defense is from uh, apolog. Gia, apologia, and, and, and then we get the, the term apologetic from that word. And the term can be used for a formal defense as in a court. But it is also used many times in Scripture in, in, in far more informal settings. So what does it mean? What is your defense? The question is answered in the verse. Give an account for the hope that is in you. Give an account. So what is that? Be able to tell somebody why you have hope in Jesus. Why are you walking around like your feet don't even touch the ground because you're so thrilled that you're part of the body of Christ and that Jesus has saved you? Why are you, why are you living that way? Somebody's watching you and they come to you. Why are you so happy? Can you answer the question? Give a testimony of why you have faith in Jesus. Your defense is the facts about how Jesus bought and purchased you from sin and death. This is the believer's proclamation of the gospel. The truth of salvation by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know your testimony? And sometimes we use that kind of language and and people all just kind of clam up. My testimony? I've never given my testimony. Oh, Did you get saved or not? How did Jesus do that? A couple of years ago, Zach and I went to a pastor's conference up in Estes Park in Colorado. And I said, Zach, come with me. And we walked over to what's called the Longhouse on the YMCA camp up there. We walked in and and I walked into the room and I kind of looked around and I went, right here, this is where it happened. And Zach, you know, he's kind of cocky. He says, what? This is where I met Jesus Christ. This is where Jesus became my Savior. Right here. I remember that. Well, that's good. I can do that, and I can remember that time. I know people, three or four of my kids, for example, they don't know exactly when it happened. All they know is that it happened. 
What's your testimony? Well, the bigger testimony isn't that you can go to the spot or the time when you got saved. What is important is that Jesus saved you. Did he die for you? Did he raise from the dead? Is he still living in you? Yes. That's your testimony. When somebody sees you living as a zealot for the kingdom of God and they say, what is with you? You can say, Jesus is with me. He died for me. He rose from the dead. That's the apologetic. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's our apologetic. That's our testimony. So there's a question. Can you defend your Christian beliefs? And by defend, I don't mean argue with somebody whether God's real or not. Give them the apologetic. So, so say, yeah, it all is real for me because I know him personally. I talk with him every day. He entered my life and changed who I am. Can you tell people why you believe? What you believe? That's a challenge. Peter then adds that giving our defense needs to be with gentleness and reverence. I believe what Peter is saying is that when you, when you give this apologetic in a gentle way, your defense, your apologetic, is power under control. Your testimony, there really isn't anything more powerful. And you can control that by how you give it. When a believer can carefully articulate a clear message of why they believe in Jesus, those who are hostile to the believer have nothing solid to push back against. I experienced this many times on the college campus I worked on. I was opposed numerous times for my belief I didn't do anything. I was opposed once. I've told you the story. All I had was a poster on my wall that said Jesus. Just the name Jesus. And the issue went to the president's office. He can't have that in his office. That's, a, that's against the rules. You know who defended me? I didn't do anything. My boss, who kept saying I'm an atheist, defended me. It was cool. It was great. They can't push back. When the message is delivered with gentleness, with power under control, the enemy is subdued. Go do it, man. I challenge you. Take the time. If you have to, take the time. Write your testimony, meaning write how Jesus saved you. Write what it means to be saved. Then rehearse it to yourself. And then maybe rehearse it with others, maybe in a small group or somewhere in a Sunday school class. And then be willing to give your account to anyone. I've done it on, on, on ski lifts, which is great because the person can't go anywhere. <laughs> go ahead, jump. I've done it on airplanes. That's pretty cool too. <laughs> Where are you going to go? Go deep. Go deep and pack your mind full of the Scripture. That's the other part. I challenge you to do that. Never, ever assume as a believer that you've arrived. You have never, you, you, you will never have all of the knowledge available to the Word. 
from the word. Go deep. Get your mind packed full of God's word. And this will give you more and more confidence to give the account for the hope that is in you. Peter goes on, verse 16, Keep a good conscience, so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ, may be put to shame. Keep, in verse 16, means to maintain. Okay? It can also mean to possess. And I think the the two nuances go together in this verse. You're to maintain a good conscience. God has made each one of us with this thing called a conscience. A conscience is really pretty simple. A good one, when your conscience is good, it's saying, everything's good, all is well. A bad conscience tells you, nope, you're in sin, everything's bad. It's really not any more complicated than that. A good conscience is important when we encounter hostility, criticism, or persecution, because with a good conscience, we don't feel guilty. If you live with unconfessed sin, so be be careful here, because I'm not saying you have to be perfect and without sin. If you live with unconfessed sin and are not zealous for goodness, when persecution comes, you feel guilty. And that is really what you deserve. When your life is right with Christ, with, with Jesus, and you've made Jesus Lord of your life, your conscience is good and you can, you can deal with the anxiety and trouble and persecution that might come your way. Even when you are in a trial, there can be peace. When your heart is set on following, submitting to, and pursuing Jesus. When you live with zeal for goodness, when you live for Christ and submit to Him, those who slander you, and that means those who verbally abuse you, insult you, the shame is on them. And you can leave their judgment to God. You don't have to retaliate. God will take care of it. And if that kind of tweaks your mind a little bit, that's a pretty scary place to be. So pray for them. Pray for your enemies. In this whole thing, if believers live in such a way that no one can find a scandal and people still slander the believer, the slander accumulates shame and actually ends up looking bad. This section ends with verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Y'all might get praises for doing good. Okay. What if you suffer because you're doing what's right? When a believer suffers for what is right, God blesses, and there's an eternal reward that takes us out of this life. And, and puts it in the future. But if, if a believer suffers for doing what is wrong, really there's, there's nothing but suffering. God will not bless you when you do wrong things. It can be God's will for the believer to suffer for doing what is right. That's hard. But it is his, his will for the believer to suffer because that strengthens the believer and develops endurance. It can be also God's will 
for a believer to suffer when they do wrong things to discipline and bring correction to a believer. This is great help for us. These are troubling times. This is great help for living in a hostile world. And the greatest example of all of this this morning, this kind of life, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He faced intense hostility while never, ever doing anything wrong. Where this takes us then, and where we leave here this morning and go out into our lives, is this. Let's go imitate our Master. Father, thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for each one of us. I thank you, Father God, that you have, you've placed us here to honor you and to live for you. Help us to be ready to give a testimony of why we have hope and joy in you. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price and rescuing us from sin. In Christ's name, amen.